story number one. A child takes a step, unsteadily, with youth into the bustling ball. Years from now, they will not look back at the remnants about the good old days. They won't think about the toy store up on the second floor, on the other side of the central atrium. They won't remember pleading with their parents to buy them various confectionery products. They won't wax nostalgic in their old age about living a life free of worries of maturity, because the child has never lived that life. No child like them has for a long, long time. Instead of a wide eyes taking in anything that they can see, asking all the wrong questions that someday they can ask all the right questions, the child keeps their head down. They just need to get twenty-odd feet, then they can turn into the alley and back home to the underbelly, known only to the authorities, who would much rather leave them be to be ignored and confront the facts of the matter. Out of sight... Out of mind, should one of the many moorgoers look too closely under the dark fabric that the child's face in shadow, first there would be surprise, then recognition. Maybe the eyes are a little bigger than usual, and the nose even less significant. But that's the face that they see on the news, on the posters, in the stories parents tell to teach their own children of disobedience. They're basically looking the same anyway. This time, it's only patronizing question, the child. Given a rare moment of compassion, takes the opportunity to escape before it gets worse. Before other people notice, they slip away and squeeze through the gap between Technology Repair Shop and the family-owned restaurant serving local cuisine. Usually the mall-goer is not so kind. There is strength in a herd stronger than any individual, so anyone that can hear the observant spotter will quickly know. And it takes only seconds for the bubble of space to appear. And possibly from the dense crowd out of nowhere, it is not meant to entrap the child. No. It is risk too great. What if it attacks someone? No. This isolation is for the protection of everyone else. It moves fluidly as the child walks two dozen further steps, dead empty, unnoticed anyway. But given the protection of anonymity, someone always shouts and breaks the silence. A moment passes, then another. The whole crowd starts to cheer. They call the child many names, names customarily reserved for adults. Murderer, savage, predator. Segregation has worked its magic well. The great-great-grandchild of the enemy stands amongst them, and all they can ever see is the face from the many hours of historical documentaries and dramatizations when they studied the last great war in great school. The face of the greatest foe. Human. The child's good mood, having successfully evaded unpleasant situation, puts a spring at their step, a slight smile on their face. They pat their lumps on their pockets every few steps, and the smile remains. Tonight, at least, they will not fall asleep to the lullaby of a grumbling stomach. The ration balls are bland, tasteless, and without texture. They stretch just a little further than a natural gluten should, and are hardly heavy in their hand. However, one only needs to eat two a day, and they are ridiculously inexpensive. Someone who had not been born in this subject poverty would have likely been bored of self-inflicted starvation after a few weeks. But the child has it lucky. They've never tasted anything else. In a little more than a week, though, they would not know it. Their parents are going to throw a small party for them. 
The child will have lived ten years on a mile and three-quarters orb of steel and inches thick glass that they could be a few thousand other humans call home. Arrangements have been made. Favors called in for the child to have a stew made with some extra vegetables left over from the soup kitchens for the poor of the more desirable evolution. Favor will explode on the atrophied taste buds and the sensations unheard of will rise in a vegetable flood of emotions throughout their mind. Some minutes after the child leaves the mall, the crowd erupts and applause at the priority announcement from the Committee of Environmental Pacification, and the child's fate would be forever altered. They would never get that vegetable stew. With the full support of the five houses, it was decreed that the human's refusal to effectively integrate into a proper society and sustained unemployment and crime rate the committee would sadly be forced to separate humans from their interaction with the benevolent conquerors. They would be relegated to the heavy monitored regions of the selected set of planets, and overseen by the members of the CEP Enforcement Bureau to ensure the continued safety for themselves and for others. Not a single predator species survived on their home planet, thanks to the committee. They have won a millennia-long war for the tropic supremacy. This ethnic cleansing is simply the next logical step. They have finally found the solution to the human problem. The child, finally reaching the wide-stretching hallway of the human's cold home, turned a corner and found a nightmare. A sea of pristine white uniforms filled the halls between the hovels and the shacks, littering the maintenance tunnels and the station. Blue-gloved hands snatched children from the weeping parents, pulling friends from family apart, and no prized possessions is left unconfiscated. The child stands in the shadow of the doorway, eyes wide, unmoving. They see glimpses of old friends and loved family, faces stretching an abject horror. Order begins to form from the chaos after a few minutes, and it becomes evident that the enforcers are corralling the residents into a double-wide line surrounded by the unsettling number of weapons and being led out. The child in this previously hidden position now feels suddenly exposed. The street is no longer in chaos, and the only matter of time until they are swatted and brought into line. The child finally is able to move again, but they barely turn their head when an enforcer shouts. After a few seconds of overwhelming, confusing movement, they find themselves in the line, staggering along with many others. The line of people, thousands long, snakes through the little used maintenance hallways and towards an even more rarely used voidside hangar, not nearly large enough to turn a profit in trading and without any useful planetary shuttles. The only settled planet in the system is found on the other side of the station. The hangar is cleaner than it has ever been before. Scattered empty containers no longer dot the edges of the room. Decades of scuff marks and from where pilots think they know better than a computer have been buffed out and repaired if necessary. The three flickering lights in the corner have been replaced and now all the rest in this place have a number of committee prisoners transport craft. Far too few to carry all those that have been rounded up, such as livestock today. The affair is a silent one. In the cavernous space, the echoing click of boots drowns out the muted shuffles of the subdued population. Between the enforcers, all that passes are concise orders, called and blue-gloved gestures. The humans similarly remain quiet. It was demonstrated earlier on what happens to those who draw attention, much less incite rebellion. An order is barked out much louder than those preceding it to the huddled masses. Stand in rows. The guns gesture aggressively and the order is followed without dissent.
All of a sudden, the child feels the first, but certainly not the last, time being truly alone. Until this moment, there had always been a promise of safety, a cow to hide in, an unseen doorway to look out of, adults to stand between. Three feet separate the child from the nearest person, and this room, terrifyingly agoraphobia-inducing. An unseen command passes between the enforcers and a number of holster their weapons, and begin to systematically search the spacious grid. The child, unable to see around those standing around them, is not witness to this. All they hear are footsteps and the people's shouts, angry and afraid. Those next to the child become agitated, joining the shouting, and the clamor reaches its peak. A shot rings out, and the empty cartridge strikes the ground with a clink. The grown-ups to the child's front are pushed apart with a glove, and a red polka dots on light blue reaches through and grabs the child's arm. The transports are full of children, and only children. The child turns to look back, and through the shrinking aperture of the enforcer captain's arm drops, and, even through the closed door, the thunderous roar of gunfire feels like a battering ram to the chest. Crying is a waste of water, and will get no pity in return. The child has learned many lessons in the years that have spent enslaved on this planet. Save every single drop, and eventually you will be rewarded for working hard. This planet should have never been colonized. The local star's proximity is the most pleasant of all its features. The complete and utter lack of surface water means night and day oscillate between freezing cold and unbearably hot, creating gale-force winds and all day and all night dunes thus flow across the surface like waves in slow motion, and the only structures that remain above the sand must be hundreds of meters tall and shaped for minimal friction. The sand itself is the worst part. It's not comfortable sand for idyllic beaches, nor is it even unpleasant roughness of the rocky desert on an otherwise temperate planet. No. The sand is made up primarily of volcanic products, breaks of silicon and other toxic elements which lacerate any patch of exposed skin with shocking ease, and permanently damage your lungs should you breathe it in. Life was not meant to exist in this hell. Luck would have it, though, that the child was found to have some skill at repairing the various machines employed on the harvesters and to process the silicon-rich ash, and was selected as a technician. As opposed to the most of the workers, the technician has never traveled more than a few feet outside the spire. On the occasion that an outside filter projector needed to be recalibrated manually, or the seeding mechanisms had become jammed with debris, Years and years pass and the technician rises in skill and standing. After successfully preventing a potentially catastrophic battery explosion when all the other workers had fled the area, the warden takes notice. The technician has not a single infraction in the record since the day that they were taken, and has done nothing but work hard for the betterment of the operations on the planet. The warden sees fit to reward their talent with a significant promotion, an apprenticeship to the member of the emergency team. The apprentice's mess hall serves food, real food, and it is weeks until the technician is able to taste anything without the overwhelming euphoria. The technician is given their own bed, a small alcove, and a box to store the personal belongings, though they have none, and there is even a water condenser on the wall of the room. Their roommates are running a black market water trade, precious fluid in the exchange for various goods and services from those not so lucky as to have a condenser at hand. The technician disapproves. They should be using the water to improve the water efficiency, which is what really matters. 
The technician is so close to the even greater success. Why would they risk it all for an extra comforts? A few days after promotion, the technician is sent out with the team to respond to a distress call a few miles outside of the spire. Upon arrival, it is reported that the distress call was due to a careless mistake made by the dispatch committee representative. They had failed to properly secure the tether when exiting the craft, and then sadly tripped on the way out and suffocated under the tens of feet of ash. The enforcers of the emergency team was suspicious, but the collection crew, as well as the humans on the team, played up their innate pedantry stupidity, all the while making no real attempt to hide the truth. And the enforcer had just lapped it all up. As soon as the team was out of hearing range, the enforcers all laughed for hours. The technician seethed in anger. The technician, a mere technician no longer, wears the blue gloves and stands behind the right shoulder of the warden. Since their first encounter with the callous descent of the emergency team, they've reported hundreds of infractions to the warden and his enforcers. It was with their eyes and their hands that countless attempted rebellions had been put down before they could even begin. Now their hair has begun to grey, and the ever-creeping onset of time has become shockingly apparent. Only exasperated by the noxious fumes and inevitable ash particles that one breathes over the years. The right-hand man of the warden looked down at their own hands, and though their uniform was unmarred brilliant white, their gloves spotless, the hand seized drops of red nonetheless. Because the day before, the shuttle had arrived with a new batch of slaves. One of the children had managed to escape their cuffs, and purely by accident ran towards the guard's weapon locker. The right-hand man acted with an efficient expedience, years of training honing their abilities and hit the center mass of the target. There was no time for emotion, no time to judge what was right and what wasn't, only the threat and its neutralization. The warden had trained the hand well, and the hand had been thankful. It had protected him in a way that nothing did when they were small. It had been essential for the continuing maintenance of the facilities in the spire. It had turned them into perhaps the most powerful human in the galaxy. But now the training had guided them to kill a child without hesitation, and they remember... For the first time in decades, the mass murder and enslavement of an entire species. They remember their parents' smiles, telling them to be careful in public areas, telling them that they'll see each other later. They remember watching the best friend being beaten in front of them, or stealing candy that had in all actuality rolled underneath the passing hovercar that was crushed. The hand remembers in a deluge of memory being the child no longer, like the one shot dead the day before. They remember everything they had spent decades working towards. Safety, food, power. Being taken away by the very same oppressor that they thank for the pitiful scraps in the figurative table today. And they vow, as they congratulated for their quick thinking and true devotion and laws and goals of the committee, to do whatever it takes in order for no child to experience anything like this ever again. The news reaches the spire barely a few days later. War has begun. Black-helmeted terrorist operatives of an unknown origin have assassinated members of the committee and five houses on live video, and a fleet has reached the spinewood border regions of the Empire. The spider, being a vital manufacturing and prison planet, is reinforced with significant portion of the third house's fleet in its garrison. The slaves are pushed harder than ever, working far too long with not nearly enough rest. The burnouts are inevitable in the next few years. But the warden is taking a calculated wager that the war is not to last that long. The royal fleets are the dominant military force in the galaxy. 
with a significant portion of the fleet stationed above the spire. Security is tighter than ever, and the quotas are strict, even for one such as the right hand of the warden. Completing the task now will be much harder. It's convenient that the oppressors bleed the same blue as the hand's gloves. Decades of war have passed. What was advertised as a quick campaign to display the military might of the royal fleet has become a war of attrition, and it is a war the houses have been losing for quite some time. When the slaves that they rely on for industry are faced with the choice between being certainly worked to death or the possibility of escape, and when the invaders have demonstrated their desire for slavery, more and more resources and enforcers must be devoted to maintaining internal stability. The child, who by now has not been a child for near eternity, stands at the airlock. It cycles before them, and the whoosh of the air between ten centimeter blast or and muffles the tears striking the ground, and the whoops of joy of those not stunned to silence by the sudden freedom now standing on the other side. Bones aching, the child turns around, weight resting on a pleasantly curved and decorated cane in the left hand. It looks down the barrel of the gun, the gun rests in a blue-gloved hand, an arm clothed in a white sleeve, the ivory sullied and burns in patches of blue and red. The tears still flow faster than ever, precious waters seeming to spill onto the ground in a torrent, reminiscent of long-forgotten Amazonian rain, a strun waterfall or the snow-mouth river amongst the white-capped Scandinavian mountains. The warden's hands twitches. Now, in anger, and both sides of the standstill know that it is too late. Far too late for either of them. Already the sounds of battle can be heard drawing ever closer to the peak of the spire. And those blue gloves have studied enough, healed enough to know that the tears are not of sadness or of resignation to manifest fate. Voices can be faintly heard now throughout the walls, others shouted assured in victory, just outside the door, preaching any second now. The child remembers every day of their life in this moment, a life of misery, obedience, and heroism. As the door disintegrates into the fragments, the gun jerks and flashes. They smile. The fragments of the door fly into the room with supersonic speed, Hundreds of impacting smudged grey back of the blue glove from forces, and they are killed nearly instantly. They continue through, passing over the form of a familiar wizened finger, while the blue joins red on the airlock door. Four people, clearly soldiers, enter the now empty room quickly and efficiently, and once it is clear threat is neutralized, gather around the two bodies. Lumps form in their throats, and the soldiers quickly assign blame to themselves, for being just no, for failing to get the secondary view of what they thought was only the enemy combatant. They took off their black, faceless helmets and bowed their heads. Because the four of them see themselves in the second body, they see the reflection of their own forward-facing eyes, sunken slightly into that flat face, and the carnivorous incisors in the herbivore's flatter rear teeth. With white hair they hope to live long enough to grow, now that the war is drawing to a close. A message reaches their ears that the ship has departed from the hangar, just meters away from where they expected fleeing committee from forces. But instead, the crew of escaped human slaves, they look down at the creases around the eyes of the human on the ground, and the slight space between their lips. The soldier smiles too. And in the deafening silence, there is a sound of a teardrop uniting with its minutes-old compatriots. And then another. And then another. End of chapter.